2020, more than 100,000 cases of domestic violence were reported to Florida law enforcement agencies. The Suncoast Only Certified Crisis Center says their hotline handles thousands of calls each year. We'll talk with Spark, the Safe Place and Rape Crisis Center, about what they do to help victims of domestic violence, and we'll hear from one survivor. It's all coming up. This is The Lead. Welcome. I'm Jim DeLaw. So with us today, we have three guests. We have Jessica Hayes, the president and CEO of Spark, which is the uh, Safe Place and Rape Crisis Center yes. in Sarasota. Uh, Patrick Duggan, who's on the board of directors. And uh, Monica Medina, who is uh, an author and a life coach who has written a book uh, about some personal experience having to do with domestic violence. So all three of you, welcome. Thanks Thanks for coming to thanks us today. Thanks for the opportunity. Yeah, Thank thanks. you for having me. Um, so November is Domestic Violence Awareness Month. I don't know that that many people are aware the the depth of, of, of the issue here and how big of a problem it may be. You know, it really is a public health epidemic. And I, I usually tell people you don't want to know what we know at Spark because it's it's one in four women is the national statistic. Um, but it's every every demographic. There's no neighborhood that's exempt from, ex, from domestic violence. Um, we serve everyone from the people that we run into every day to um, members of, you know, your family, your friends, people you knew from college. Um, it's... It's a widespread problem, unfortunately. Okay. Uh, I was trying to gather some statistics. Uh, nationally, uh, this is from uh, the Office of Domestic Violence from the Federal Department of uh, Children and Families. Uh, one in four women and one in ten men experience sexual violence, physical violence, uh, during their lifetime. 23.2% of women have experienced severe physical violence by a partner during their lifetime. Uh, in Florida, um, there were 106 in 2020, which is the latest year they have statistics for, 106,000 crimes of domestic violence were reported to law enforcement agencies. I mean, that's, that's astounding. I mean, it, do the local figures uh, kind of match what Absolutely. We're yeah. And, and I think what we're looking at is statistics that are a couple of years old. And of course, that's just who reports it. Those are just the, the incidences where maybe somebody had to call law enforcement. There are many incidences where, you know, what's going on behind closed doors is just kept, kept there. So um, it's, it's definitely very prevalent. Can, can you define what domestic violence uh, is? Because I, I think it's probably more encompassing than what many people may 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 think. Sure, and, and Patrick might want to give like the statutory definition, but, but how we look at it at Spark is, um, you know, we look at when there's an imbalance of power and control, when one person um, seeks to control another person, and that obviously is physical violence, that's what people first think of, but it can be emotional abuse, uh, financial abuse, um, isolation. There are a lot of tactics that are used to create a, an imbalance of power where one person essentially controls the other person's access to resources to support um, through through numerous tactics. But, yeah. Patrick, this may be a question for you since you have the legal and law enforcement background here. Um, do you think that law enforcement agencies are really 
trained well at this point to be able to deal with that or is there more that a lot of uh, especially municipal police departments and that kind of stuff need need to do to, to help uh, well there's always more you can do um, like anything training is constrained by resources but I am very comfortable um, and I'm a partner with the local law enforcement agencies I'm a former a lawyer at the sheriff's office here in Sarasota. Um, I was a state prosecutor, so I'm pretty familiar with what processes are in place with the local police departments, the local sheriff, and the local prosecutors. And since you know the 90s, um, with all the attention on domestic violence, um, the state of Florida and the local law enforcement agencies have devoted a considerable amount of resources into uh, prioritizing um, domestic violence uh, deterring it, enforcing it, um, you know, making sure that it is treated seriously. Um, I know the local law enforcement agencies do uh, frequent training on the topic, um, and uh, I think they do a very, very nice job here um, in combating it and taking it seriously and spreading awareness of it. Um, certainly, there's always room to uh, have more, um, but I, I'm comfortable that we have the right people in place in this community and that they take it seriously. Can you tell me a little bit about what SPARC actually does and what kind of services you provide? Sure. Um, SPARC is most commonly, think people think of a domestic violence center as the shelter, but it's much more robust than that. So we serve Sarasota and DeSoto counties through five different locations, um, offices in Venice, Northport, Arcadia, Sarasota. We partner with the Department of Children and Families to work with um, those that are in the system who have child abuse reports but are also experiencing domestic violence. So we have our hotline, our shelter, um, crisis counseling, therapy, some of the more traditional services that people think of. But we also have two attorneys on staff um, that can represent um, survivors of domestic violence or sexual assault free of charge in getting an injunction for protection. Um, we have children and youth services, support groups, and we do a lot of prevention, education, and community outreach because really we'd love to put ourselves out of a job. While it's a vast problem that's not going anywhere anytime soon, um, we do make a, a great effort to to work to stop the cycle of violence. About how many people do you serve in a, in a year? Oh, it depends on the program. Uh, probably 3,000 hotline calls, a couple hundred people in the shelter. We shelter pets as well. So I think we had 20 pets in the kennel last year at our domestic violence shelter. Um, and a, over a thousand people through what we call outreach, which means non-residential. So they, they might be coming in for legal or therapy. They might um, have support where they're either still um, in the home where it's, there's violence, they haven't made that break yet, or um, family or resources to, to not need the emergency shelter. You know, just those initial, whether that be over the telephone um, or text, we have a text line if someone can't call on the hotline. But that initial um, meeting, whether it's in person or over the phone, to say, you know, um, you know, sometimes people come to us and say, well, I don't really know if what I'm experiencing, it might not be domestic violence. It might, you know, and then we start talking to them about the different dynamics and, and they start to see like, oh, you mean everybody's not restricted by what times they can eat dinner or when, you know, it's those things that become normal to you when you love someone and it becomes, you know, coping and you're, um, so we're able to do that crisis intervention and talk through support and say, you know, this isn't your fault. And this, in fact, is not typical of a healthy relationship and talking through what resources and what options might be available to someone. 
speaking of that personal experience, we have someone who's been through it. Uh, Monica, tell us, tell me about your book. Uh, what exactly is it about and why did you write it? So my book is about domestic violence and it is told through the child's perspective, that perspective being mine. Um, I was witness to my mother's abuse by my stepfather from the age of three all the way up until 17. Um, and during that time, there was a lot of turmoil and fear and uncertainty that dictated our lives. Um, and it went on for quite a long time. Um, I won't give away like the brink of the story, but you know, I wrote this book because there was a, a long period of time where our family had a court case uh, that was ongoing for about seven years, which made it very difficult for our family to heal and move on. So after that court case was complete um, and I could finally be free of this violent and abusive past, I really wanted to write this book because it was finally over for me and I could see a new light at the end of the tunnel um, and realize how how disrupted that past really was. So I wanted to write that book to inspire other people and to heal, truly. What was, what was the writing process like for you? It was difficult, it was very difficult. It was forcing myself to go back every day into those memories and to uh, write them all down um, and relive them. So it was, although it was difficult, it was also cathartic to kind of detox myself from that and feel like it was on paper and the book could carry it so I no longer had to. Um, so it was, it was just a, an evolving journey of, of healing. Okay, tell me about the title of the book. What is The Third Return? So the third return, the title actually just came to me as I was trying to mull over what to call my experience. Um, and it really dawned on me that in domestic violence, there's a lot of leaving and returning to the situation. Um, so I don't know the statistics on it, but there's there was multiple times or three times specifically that my mom attempted to leave the situation and then ultimately returned. So the third return is about her third attempt to leave that situation and how it just, it changed the course of, of our lives. Uh, you said that the, the court case took seven years. It did. To, is, that, is that normal, I mean, for, I for cases like this? That's exceptionally long time. Oh, okay. Yeah, but, but I do think the, you know, Monica talking about growing up and and it being kind of um, something she experienced through, throughout her entire childhood. You know, a lot of times people ask, you know, why doesn't someone just leave? That's the most frequent question that um, I think we get, and you mm -hmm. probably hear that a lot. Absolutely. And this book might shed some light on that, but also, you know, we're asking the wrong question. We are not asking why is this person abusing this other person and what barriers is the victim experience experiencing that keeps them from leaving. So, you know, at Spark, we're really looking to reduce those barriers. Is it legal? Is it 
um, housing? Is it safety planning is a huge piece of it. It's a huge piece of what we do because if you're going to leave, you need to have a safety plan. Um, it's the most dangerous time for a victim of domestic violence when they're planning to leave and then when they do leave, when they gain different steps to independence. So, um, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's, it's not just something that you come to Spark and take care of it and it's all over. It's, it's usually, you know, it's some... It's a relationship. Many times people love this person. They've got a history. They might have children. There's, mm -hmm. it's complex. Yeah, there's so many reasons. I mean, I've said, after I had my own children, I said, now I understand. If you had to choose between knowing where you were, how you're gonna feed your kids or the known of, okay, if I, if I tiptoe enough around these issues and I, and I do these things, maybe I can keep it from being too violent, but I know I'm gonna have a place for my kids to sleep and I'm gonna have food and I'm gonna not be homeless. I mean, I, mm -hmm. that's, that's a huge thing, but, but not just people that have children. I mean, it's very expensive to live here. And so to leave, you know, many times when you're in an abusive relationship, you've been isolated from your resources, you've, your support, your family, your friends, um, maybe you're, you haven't been hanging out with your friends for three or four years. You can't just call someone and, I'm ready to come stay with you for, you know, six months. Um, so housing, super big obstacle right now that we're working on um, finding new resources to help break down that barrier for people because um, that's just one of many. Um, but, but again, leaving is the most, the statistics show that leaving is the most lethal time. It is the highest risk because when that person sees that they're losing control, they might lose this person, and they make those threats of, if I can't have you, no one will. That Those are very real threats. Um, so it's, it's sometimes staying is what keeps someone alive, mm -hmm. which sounds really dramatic, but it's true. Yeah. From, from my experience prosecuting these cases, um, they're not only serious, but they're also very complex situations with a lot of emotions, given that intimate relationships that people have, that they live in the same household, and you would see those emotions manifest in, you know, uh, people changing their mind about whether they wanted to prosecute, whether they wanted to leave, and that was a, a daily change sometimes. Um, and certainly these two women could talk about those cycles m with much more expertise than I could, but um, it certainly is, uh, they're hard cases to prosecute, and they are um, very, very complicated all the way through. Oh, the emotional toll is deep. Um, it prevented us from, from moving forward, from grieving, from healing. Um, you think that once you are done with that person and you're, you've moved to a different state, because I'm originally from Illinois, when you move to a different state, you start a new job, you start meeting new friends, and then you get a, a subpoena to be in court. And so that happened on and off for seven years. And so it just felt like I was being pulled back into this life and that I couldn't fully step into, you know, my, my own life and my own um, careers and endeavors and, and friendships and relationships with this looming in the past. Um, but it's, on top of that, it would, and, and so everyone in my family experienced that. Everyone in my family had the same, you know, you know, we'd have to start thinking about it again as court drew near and, and starting to have, you know, thoughts about, well, what if he's convicted, not convicted, um, and what will that look like for, for us? 
Um, so even on top of that, actually finally getting into court and you know being the first to take the stand and testify against my stepfather um, was was something I never thought I'd have to do. Um, it was, I don't think words really come close to describing just how difficult that was to do with him being there in the courtroom as well, hearing me, you know, go against him and, and support my mom. Um, but it was thankfully, you know, victorious for our family and well worth the wait as he was convicted to life in prison. Um, so we did have that blessing, but there was, it took a long time to get there. About how long does a, on average, does, does a person uh, continue to use Spark even after, from like beginning to when they feel like they can uh, you know, be on I their own? I would say again? on average, it's, it's actually fairly short, which we would like for it to be longer because honestly, people tend to come to Spark, um, on the worst day of their lives. I usually say that when people say, oh, we'd love to talk to someone that Spark helped. Um, it's hard for us to re-engage people because once they've put it behind them and they're safe and they've put the crisis in the past, many times they don't want to revisit the time that they needed Spark or the experiences that led them there, which I, which is completely understandable. And um, we want them to feel safe and whatever that looks like. But I would say um, in general, the our services are very crisis intervention focused, but we do have services long-term. Um, we have therapists that are available. Again, all services are free and confidential. You don't have to be working with law enforcement to receive SPARC services or have any sort of special in or referral. It's, it's all free and available to anyone who needs it. Um, but the average is short, but I, but you know, we can do, we talk about safety planning. Well, you might need safety planning in the moment for your physical safety. And then there's emotional safety planning. And if you share children, you might be um, interacting with that person far into the future. And while you might not have to live in fear daily, there's still fear and trauma that comes back up each time you have to interact. I would, I would think that some kind of therapy, even after that, continuing, you know, for some months after that would probably be uh, effective and probably uh, uh, pretty useful. Yeah, and we just we do what we can to empower the victim or survive, you know, survivor. We call them survivors because they've survived the incident um, or incidences. But we want to empower them so they to make whatever decision is best for them. And so for some people, they want to be on the news and talk about it and be very public, and we support them in that. And others never want to talk about it again and don't want therapy or want to go to therapy. So, you know, everything, every person is different and their healing path right. is different. What, what can a community do to prevent this kind of thing from happening? Um, there's so much, but I would say not shying away from the topic. I think um, we all discussed that before we started today, you know, um, many people think it affects other people. It's, you know, I might have known somebody that was affected, but really we all know someone who has been affected or is being affected by it. So I think the first thing is to acknowledge it's not taboo. It's not someone's fault that they're in an abusive relationship, that um, someone chooses to abuse someone else, and that is a choice that they're making. It's 
um, and acknowledging it. And then there's so much as a community we can do from from parenting and teaching our kids about healthy relationships and um, having good boundaries in their relationships to um, our community leaders being involved. There's speaking. No, yeah. you're, you're really hitting on a lot. Um, some of the things that come to my mind as you're speaking is just um, not making it taboo. You know, a lot of people think that, especially bystanders as far as like colleagues and friends watching the victim in domestic violence, they think that it's private. It's, it's a family matter. I can't intervene. But there are many ways to ask someone if they need help gently and kindly uh, and compassionately that in a way that that person will be uh, reciprocal. So it's, th there are ways, you know, you don't have to feel like that is off limits. Um, there's plenty of opportunity and, and ways to go about that. Um, and as you mentioned as well, early education. Uh, I talk about in my book not really knowing, I've never heard the term domestic violence until I was 15 years old. And that's way too long, given that it ended when I was 17. Um, so early education, I think, is definitely the place that needs to start. But um, like Jessica said, there are many avenues to help people in these situations. What other organizations do you work with in this regard as far as? Oh, we work with, all, if you know of a nonprofit in town that's doing health and human services, we probably are partnered with them um, because we're working with, you know, we're the experts at Spark in domestic violence and sexual assault, but we want to partner with the exper experts in um, housing and in child care. So we're, we're partnering with law enforcement. I mean, we have staff that um, go to the Venice Police Department and Northport Police Department once a week and work with their officers, provide training, and provide resources if needed. Um, Sarasota County Sheriff's Office, Sarasota Police Department, State Attorney's Office, <laughs> you name it, we're, we, we want to be there. And the hospitals as well yes. do a nice job. Yes. If people want to help, there's so many ways to get involved and help. Um, you know, from business and community leaders who want to serve on a board of directors. Um, we have a thrift store where all of the proceeds from the Spark Treasure Chest support our programs and services, and the, the items can be um, obtained by those that we serve at no cost to them. They can volunteer in the thrift store, they can shop at the thrift store. Um, Monica is a member of the Spark Auxiliary, which is a fundraising group of volunteers that um, gets together and puts on different activities and events throughout the community that raise awareness and funds to support Spark. And then we have direct service positions for those who really want to delve into um, significant amount of training so that they can provide a more hands-on volunteer experience. But there's, you know, and doing a diaper drive. I mean. We, we try to help those that we serve with everything that they might need um, to break down those barriers, those things that they're struggling with. So household items, diapers, toiletries, all of that. I imagine the people just leave without mm -hmm. just the clothes on their back sometimes. Absolutely. It's really nice to hear about all the services, even though I'm aware. It's nice to be reminded of all the things that Spark is doing for people in this community. Um, you know, because when I was younger, that just was unheard of. Um, we went so long in the situation that we did, partly because we didn't know what other options we had. We didn't know what kind of support there was out there um, or what kind of resources, uh, let alone that they could be free of cost. 
Um, so it's just, it's very inspiring. And I, I hope others definitely, absolutely take advantage of, you know, those free resources that could potentially lead to, you know, life-changing outcomes. I just would add, October is uh, Domestic Violence Awareness Month, but it's not a one of 12 month problem. Um, just, I can't emphasize enough to our community um, the need to have awareness that this is a 12 month, 365 day, 24 hour, you know, seven day a week issue that our community, um, and while it's uncomfortable to think about um, having an awareness of how broad in scope the problem is, will go a long way uh, towards addressing it. Well, Jessica Hayes is the president and CEO of SPARK. Uh, Patrick Duggins on the board of directors. And Monica Medina uh, has written a book. And it's called The Third Return. It's available Amazon and... Yeah, it's available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Target, Books A Million, as well as Bookstore One here in Sarasota and the Venice Island Bookshop. All right. Well, thanks. Thanks for coming. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. And that's The Lead. The podcast is produced at ABC7, your local station in Sarasota, Florida. Please feel free to share this podcast and subscribe wherever you get your audio. I'm Jim DeLaw. Thanks for listening.